Benjamin Clark is a name worth remembering. He worked as the executive chef at the Fiduciary Trust Company International, where he was responsible for planning meals and feeding over 250 employees. Which company he worked for isn't all that important. It's where he worked that was significant. It was the South Tower of the World Trade Center. After the impact of the North Tower on September 11th, Benjamin took it on himself to evacuate the 96th floor of the South Tower. After several hundred people safely fled downstairs, Clark reportedly went back up to lock up and make sure everyone had left. He was last seen on the 88th floor trying to help a woman in a wheelchair get out of the building. He died in the collapse of the South Tower at the age of 39. Our passage this evening begins the story of another food service worker who paid the ultimate price in his efforts to save people, Stephen, one of the seven chosen to serve the widows in our very last passage, moves from church member to waiter to miracle worker to preacher to finally the church's very first martyr. When he was introduced to us, Luke said that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. As he's further described tonight, we'll see that he was truly one of the most remarkable Christians of the period. Listen to how one commentary describes Stephen. It says, Stephen was full of or controlled by five factors, the spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, power. Furthermore, he did great wonders and miraculous signs. What an outstanding leader. It's true, he is absolutely outstanding on the pages of Scripture. As we read about this remarkable man and see his incredible potential as a servant for Jesus Christ, I can't help but wonder why God allowed his life to be cut short. It's one of those puzzlers that will pop up from time to time in this book. Stephen dies, Philip lives. James dies, Peter lives. Why one and not the other? Why not both? Certainly God is able to save both or neither. Why one and not the other? From the modern point of view, if we were looking at Stephen's resume and his potential and his capabilities, he would have been a great candidate to become executive pastor over the church at Jerusalem or maybe the director of the school of ministry there. But after a short burst of service, he's welcomed home into eternity. What might the Lord have been doing by allowing this tragic injustice to be carried out against his servant? Well, let's take a look as we finish out chapter 6 tonight. It says in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. A few verses ago, Dr. Luke described Stephen as being full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And now, having been activated to serve in the body of Christ, Stephen is characterized as full of grace and power. It wasn't his own. It was the Lord's being supplied in him and through him. It was the Spirit working in him, speaking through him, using him in remarkable ways. When it says he was full of grace, does that mean full of God's grace toward him or his grace toward others. I think the case can be made for both. It's clear that God poured out his favor on Stephen, blessed him with his grace, but we'll also see him act with a level of graciousness toward others that's really hard to imagine. It's actually unimaginable. As he's being murdered by his own countrymen in a brutal, vicious way, he prays that God would forgive them even as the stones fall against his body. That's a grace matched only by Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
I can't even imagine the kind of grace that you have in your heart to be asking for the forgiveness of the people who are actively murdering you at that moment. And yet, that's the kind of grace that we're meant to operate with as Christians, that kind of goodwill and kindness even toward our enemies. And Stephen is an example to us of the fact that it is possible. The same spirit that works in him is at work in us. Uh, The same callings and the same commission that was given to him is giving to us. We're also told that Stephen was performing signs and wonders. Now, this is a problem for those who make the case that miracles were only for the apostolic age, that the signs and wonders of the book of Acts were really only meant to authenticate the message of the Twelve and of Paul since the New Testament hasn't been, hadn't been written yet. That's how the argument goes. But here we see a different Christian, a sort of run-of-the-mill Christian, performing the same sort of miracles that the apostles were. We'll also see later on Philip doing the same. Now, neither Philip nor Stephen were apostles, not at all. And so while we agree that the miracles in the book of Acts did authenticate the message of the apostles, sure, we don't have good biblical reason to say that they were a temporary work of God that has ceased in our day and age. You just can't make a logical case of that argument from the New Testament. Now, before moving on, I'd have us note that Stephen's power as a servant of God and as a remarkable Christian man, his power was power in action. Uh, He wasn't just a, a man of great capacity or of great sort of potential power. He was a man who had power in action. His life wasn't just like a battery that held all sorts of energy, right? His was a conduit that energy was flowing through. And energy by just mean the work of God was flowing through him. The grace of God, the power of God, the, the work of God, the message of God was flowing through him as a conduit. We want to be conduit Christians who are about the business of actively serving. That, that the, the flow of God's work doesn't just stop in us, but that it continues to work through us. And that we're going around, as Stephen did, as an active part of the body of Christ. Not dead weight, but moving around, flexing those muscles, doing what we've been called to do. We don't want to be Christians who are always just storing up spiritual things for ourselves. Oh, I need more ministry for myself. I need more ministry for myself. I need more ministry for myself, but then never giving out any ministry, never giving out the gospel, never showing grace to others or generosity and all those sorts of things. We're meant to be uh, spiritual engines in gear, right? You ever sat in a car that's not in gear? You can rev the engine all you want. It may make a little bit of a noise, but in the end, it's not going to do anybody any good if you need to get anywhere. You need your engine to be in gear so that you can make progress. And as Christians, we're called to make progress. It's a walk with the Lord, not a stand with the Lord. And so we want to be people who are in gear, a power in action. Verse 9 says, Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. It seems that Stephen was meeting in a particular synagogue, which was made up of Jews who had been enslaved in foreign lands, but now were free. Or perhaps it was descendants of Jews like that. But he was called, hey, that's the Freedmen's Synagogue. And it seems probable that Stephen could have even been a member of this synagogue before his conversion. After all, we know that he was from outside Judea, right? He has a Greek name. He's a Hellenist Jew. And here he finds himself among this group trying to preach the truth of Jesus Christ to these Jewish brothers. And we see that 
uh, the individuals here in the book of Acts, they, they, they went back to where they were from, right? The day of Pentecost came, and what did they do? They didn't immediately say, okay, let's go to the North Pole, let's go discover the new world. They said, hey, let's go back to the temple where our people are and where our community is. And so it's very probable here, I think, that Stephen was a member of the Freedmen Synagogue before he was born again. Cilicia is mentioned. Cilicia's capital was the city of Tarsus. Of course, Bible students know that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was from that city. And when Stephen is murdered, there Saul is, standing in agreement, holding the coats. It's a bit of speculation, but there's good circumstantial evidence here indicating that Saul would have been in that synagogue that day, or at least in these debates. He was a great Pharisee at the time. And as students of Paul, we know what a fine and sharp mind he had. And in that passage later in one of his letters, he's not boasting, but he says, hey, I I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I I was the cream of the crop when it came to this. And so when you have this guy, Stephen, preaching Jesus Christ, and you had a group of Jewish people uh, who said, hey, we need to debate with this guy. We need to refute what he's saying. We don't want to believe what he's talking about. Who can debate him? Who can refute him? Uh, I find it hard to believe that the Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul at the time, wasn't the guy that they tapped on the shoulder, or one of the guys they tapped on the shoulder, because we know he's there in the scene. He's there as they murder Stephen. Verse 10 says, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and, by, and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And so, in addition to being a faithful, humble, servant-hearted miracle worker, Stephen also had one of the most powerful apologetics ministries the world has ever seen. So he's an apologist, right? He's not only effectively preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, teams of people are coming to refute him, and he's dismantling all of their arguments, and he says, hang on a second, heal a sick person. Okay, what were you saying? And dismantles another argument. Hang on a second, cast out a demon. What were you saying again? And that's a a ministry, right? That's an apologetic ministry. That's going to go viral on YouTube for sure. And of course, it wasn't his own intellect accomplishing these things. It was the Spirit in him. And Luke says so. It was the Spirit by whom he was speaking. The Holy Spirit using uh, this vessel to accomplish great work. But with all due respect, the more we learn about this guy, I mean, it's only been a few verses, but the more we learn about him, the more surprising it is when we don't see God deliver him from his enemies at the end of the next chapter. Why not? This guy seems like the guy. If you want to know what, you know, the finest example of Christianity was at that moment in time, I, I think if, if they were asking, hey, who's going to win the best Christian award? Who, we need nominations. I'm putting my hand up to say Stephen should be nominated. Uh, he was a remarkable man. I mean, think about it for a minute. And again, I don't mean any disrespect by this, but just think about what we know from the New Testament. Compare Stephen to Bartholomew. Do we know anything about Bartholomew? We know a little bit from church history. If we look into it, we're not sure how much is true or not. Bartholomew was a faithful guy, but where is he? I'm sure he was doing stuff. But compare Stephen to what we know about Bartholomew. Or compare Stephen to Thomas the twin, who is more commonly referred to as Doubting Thomas, right? Stephen could speak, he could serve, he was humble, he could work signs, he could defend the faith. He's the Steve Rogers of the early church. Steve Rogers, Stephen, see? 
He's the Steve Rogers of the early church. He's Captain America of the church. Man, look at that guy. He does it all. He's bouncing all off these debates. He's healing people. He's the most humble guy. He's faithful. He's willing to push a broom or preach a sermon. This guy's an amazing example of, of, of God taking hold of a life and doing wonderful things through a willing vessel. Verse 11, then they, these Jews that were refuting him, persuaded some men to say, we heard him blas- speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. These Jews from the Freedmen's Synagogue, they may have even been friends of Stephen previously. They switched tactics here. When contending with him didn't work, they moved to conspiracy. And from the start here, as we follow their reasoning, we see the way in which their minds have been perverted. You know, these guys didn't wake up that day and say, we'd like to murder somebody. They're not serial killers. These are guys who are devout in their religion. They care very much about their, uh, their religious traditions. They think that they are doing God a favor and a service. They think they're being faithful to the God of their fathers, right? But we see the perversion of their minds. They think they're protecting the Jewish faith and defending the God of heaven, but look how twisted their thinking is right from the get-go. They say, we heard him blaspheming Moses. And they even place Moses before God himself as they speak. You can't blaspheme Moses. I can't blaspheme you. You can't blaspheme me. Moses isn't God. He's just a guy. But you see the way that they were thinking about their religion, the way they were thinking about their traditions, the way they were thinking about how people should relate to the God of heaven. And it's just twisted and it's messed up and it's not right. And again, these are men who think they are devout, doing God a favor, but they have been ruined by religion, that they could sit there and not even realize that they are saying, hey, he's blaspheming Moses and God too. Here we have a sad contrast. While Stephen was working to convince people that the Messiah had come to set them free from sin and death, these other guys are convincing people to commit a crime in the hopes that an innocent man will be arrested and ultimately murdered. We notice that the men themselves weren't gutsy enough to falsely accuse Stephen. They had to go find some flunkies to do that. They found some impressionable friends and said, hey, hey, you pull the fire alarm. Any of you guys ever do that in school when you were a youngster? Or did any of your uh, more street smart friends convince you to pull the fire alarm in school? You don't want to get your fingerprints on there. You'll go to jail, right? And so they find some impressionable young friends. And they say, hey, you pull the fire alarm. You bear false witness against this guy. Sure, you're going to be committing a crime. Sure, it's going to lead to the death of an innocent person. But go ahead and do that. Oh, okay. And that's a sad thing. Verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. And so they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. There's a thoughtfulness to what they're doing. They didn't want just any old rabble causing a ruckus that day. They made sure to get people, to get community leaders involved. They made sure to get some scribes involved too. Scribes were legal experts. Uh, They would be instrumental in a court proceeding. And so this group is doing an excellent job of railroading Stephen. And before we know it, he's in front of the Sanhedrin who apparently have nothing better to do but do these fake trials of people. Throughout the process, he has no lawyer. There's no protesters outside holding signs, free Stephen, free Stephen. Uh, It doesn't seem like his Christian brothers even know what's going on. But of course, he's far from standing alone that day. The Lord Jesus Christ is with him in power. We'll see that. 
But we note that this, for all of her spiritual power at that point in time, the church here in this moment had absolutely zero political power or influence, right? They had zero influence, zero rights, zero political power when it came to this situation. No one was going to say, hey, before we do this, we have to put a phone call into the apostles to give them a heads up. No one was going to rush to their aid and say, hey, you're not allowed to do this. Uh, they had no clout. They had no power. They had no, uh, none of the privileges that we are so used to in our day and age. But we've seen again and again, passage after passage, that the church's lack of political protection was just fine, right? We don't see them having any long prayer meetings saying, oh, Lord, if you would just give us some seats on the Sanhedrin, that's what we really need. Uh, they weren't doing that at all. It was okay that they didn't have those things. God was still moving. Revival was still happening. Lives were still being changed. Now, listen, given the option, of course, we prefer freedom and autonomy and the ability to engage the political and governmental systems around us. We're all for that. And we live in the greatest country in the world where we are able to engage at differing levels with those systems. But a scene like this one reminds us that our freedoms that we enjoy here in America, though very good, are by no means the norm for God's people in most places and in most eras. It's not the norm. The norm is what we're seeing here. No clout, no influence, no political rights, no political power. And so we should thank God for the rare privilege of freedom that we enjoy, and we should remember that it's neither guaranteed nor is it necessary for the church to thrive. We live in a very special place in a very special time. The Christians all around the world, we read about Christians in the Middle East, Christians in parts of Africa, Christians in parts of Asia, who are treated like Stephen is being treated. That's the norm. And so we should just be thankful to God for the, the gracious blessing that he has given us in the United States. And also remember that while it's good, it's certainly not necessary for the church to thrive. Uh, not at all. Verse 13 says this, they also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. You can hear the contempt uh, in their words, this Nazarene. They're disgusted by the message they'd heard. Now, of course, this is not what Stephen had said. After all, they're false witnesses. But perhaps Stephen had spoken to them about Jesus' prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. That was something that was out in the open. It was one of the things that he was accused of, you know, in his own illegal trial. Undoubtedly, Stephen had spoken to them of the new covenant that Jesus had established. But like his Lord before him, Stephen's message was distorted, misinterpreted, and lied about. These accusers were so entrenched in tradition that they would not hear the good news of the gospel. They just wouldn't hear it. And they didn't even hear themselves. I mean, they're so blind and so closed off to what God is trying to speak to them through his servant Stephen. They aren't even listening to themselves at this point. In their zeal to protect the law, what are they doing? They're breaking the ninth commandment in hopes that they'll be able to break the sixth commandment and get this guy killed. Do not bear false witness. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. 
do not murder. Yeah, we got to bear false witness so we can murder this guy because after all, the law matters. This guy's talking about not following the law. These guys don't even hear themselves. Uh, they're just so blind and so unwilling to listen to the gospel. They said, but we have customs handed down from Moses to us. Many times Jesus pointed out to the religious leaders of Israel that these so-called Mosaic customs they talked about, that they had dedicated themselves to, they weren't even biblical. They were the constructions of men masquerading as the word of God. Jesus would say to him, he's like, yeah, you're calling that the, the word of God. That's the tradition of men. And you're heaping burdens on people that God never put on them. And, and you're heaping burdens on people that no one could ever hope to carry. And all along they're saying, no, 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 this is what God spoke through Moses. We're only doing what God revealed through Moses. But it wasn't true. Now listen, if we try to put ourselves in the place of the Jewish guys, right, who are coming against Stephen, they're not setting out, they're not, they didn't set out to kill anybody that day. It's not that they just wanted to perpetrate violence, that they were just hooligans looking to hurt somebody. These are really devout religious men who really thought that they were doing their God a favor and that they had to do what they were doing in order to protect their traditions and their faith. And the example that they give us is that traditions in general can be very good, but they can also be very dangerous. Traditions always seem as if they're these stone pillars that are unchanging, that they uphold our faith, the traditions of our fathers. But in reality, when you study uh, groups or individuals who are deeply entrenched in traditionalism, you find that their traditions have subtly shifted or changed over time, right? How many of us, I mean, we have, it's Christmas time. Christmas time is all about traditions, do you think that you really celebrate Christmas the same way that your great-great-great-grandparents did? Some things are probably close to the same, and a lot of things are a lot different. But we say, well, in our family, we do this. It's our tradition. Okay, that's fine. But we recognize that, well, yeah, of course, traditions shift over time. They adjust over time. They change with the times. They change with individuals. But if you then get caught into the trap of traditionalism and say, no, 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 we have to follow this tradition, that's what holds up my faith, that's what holds up my spiritual life, you're going to run into the same kind of trouble that these Jews were running into, uh, whether we recognize it or not. And as we see here, traditions can actually be an obstacle in hearing what God is saying and seeing uh, and doing in our midst. Stephen was healing people miraculously in their midst and speaking so convincingly that not even teams of the most learned individuals could debate against him about the truth of Jesus Christ. And they couldn't hear it. They couldn't see it. They just said, wait a minute. We have our traditions and we're not willing to listen, to look, to see. We're going to ignore this truth. We're going to ignore these signs. We're going to ignore these wonders. And I'm going to cling to this man-made tradition and pretend as if it's from God. That's what's going on here. Their obsession with their man-made traditions blinded them from accepting Stephen's message of truth, even when he was working signs and wonders right before their eyes. And so traditions are a very good thing. 
and we're talking about in the church now. Traditions of our church locally, traditions in the church in the more general sense can be a very good thing, but let's be careful about how we use tradition. Our faith isn't built upon tradition. Our faith is built upon revelation of God. We serve the living God who has a living word. Uh, The Bible's not a dead document. God's not a dead God. Traditionalism requires a dead document and a dead God and that we follow through these motions and that's what holds up our spirituality. That's what holds up our faith. No, we serve a living God who's giving us his living word. And those traditions locally or in the wider body of Christ, we just want to be careful about the way that we use them in our own walks with the Lord. Any honest listener in the Sanhedrin that day would have known the Christians weren't anti-temple. They came to worship every day in the temple, bunches of them, tons of them. There was nothing honest about what's happening, happening to Stephen in this passage, and yet everybody's just going along. Why? Because they would rather cling to a man-made tradition than recognize that maybe God was going to speak something to them that they didn't know before. Verse 15 says, And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The Lord makes his presence known here in a profound way. These accusers set themselves up as the defenders of the truth of Moses. They cast Stephen as the anti-God, anti-revelation blasphemer. And yet it's Stephen whose face was shining like Moses' face had shown after being in the presence of God and speaking with him and hearing his revelation. Signs and wonders aside, it it would have been a dramatic and profound statement that heaven is making to the Sanhedrin. It should have been clear to everyone in the room uh, whose side God was on in this courtroom drama. We're here to defend Moses. That's funny. That guy's face is glowing like Moses. When did Moses' face glow? Well, when he was in the presence of God and received the revelation from God. What is this guy saying? He said that he's been in the presence of God and received revelation from God, right? Through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's an amazing, amazing thing that the Lord is doing, a miraculous thing. It shows how much attention God is paying to this situation. Now, most of you know the rest of the story. In the coming verses, Stephen will deliver a sermon before the court. And in the end, in a rage, these men will brutally murder him for his faith in Christ. Why would the Lord be okay with that? You know, we have to ask that question, I think, as we read through this. It's clear God was present in these proceedings. He's active in them. He's lighting up Stephen's face. He's speaking through Stephen as as the Holy Spirit gives him the words to share. He opens up the heavens at the end of the next passage to show that he and the Father were literally watching these things unfold in real time. Stephen says, that's neat. Look at Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Why not save him? Why not deliver him? This servant with such potential, this great example of Christianity and of the power of God working through someone. We can't answer for God, of course. His ways are beyond our finding out. He has ways that are not our ways. We acknowledge all of that. We know that God is good. We know that his plans are perfect every time, every time. What we can see is what happened as a result of Stephen's death. You see, Stephen's killing was the spark that led to a wide scattering of believers all throughout the empire. 
Interesting, we'll be told later in Acts 11 that Cyrenian men took the message of Jesus all the way to Antioch as a result of Stephen's stoning. And in Antioch, there would see a great revival with large numbers of people being added to the church. Antioch would become the center of God's work. The power center of the church would shift to Antioch for a time. And it would be the place where the disciples were first called Christians. And who brought the message there? Cyrenian men who had almost assuredly been in the audience of Stephen's debates. His death was also instrumental in the conversion of the Apostle Paul, a man whose impact on human history is so great it could never be measured. Stephen's death was the groundbreaking which launched the unstoppable spread of Christianity which continues here and now and all over the world to the present moment. He was the spark that lit the fire that sent everybody out. We're going to see that in coming passages. Now, I'm sure that had he survived... Benjamin Clark, that, that executive chef in the World Trade Center, if he would have survived and not gone to work that day, or if those planes had never hit the World Trade Center, I'm sure he would have plated some fine dishes in his career. Maybe he would have even competed on Top Chef and opened a restaurant or two, won a hundred grand. But the hundreds of people who he saved that day and their families are much better off because he laid down his life on their behalf. What do you think they prefer? that he saved their families or that he continued as an executive chef? Of course, we know the answer. At the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, Benjamin's chef's hat is on display. It commemorates his legacy not as a food server, but as a lifesaver. Now, some of you may know what Stephen's name means in the Greek language. It means crown. The Stephanos was the wreath of flowers or leaves worn most famously by winners at the Olympic Games. Paul, a man who was responsible for Stephen's death, would later write multiple times in multiple letters that we as Christians are to live our lives in pursuit of the Stephanos, that eternal reward which will never fade away. I'm sure it was really hard for him to write those words each and every time. And remember that terrible day when he held the coats and consented to an innocent man's murder. And he had to write, yeah, you know what? Now we live for the Stephanos. Now we live as an offering before the Lord. But how fitting that Stephen became the first recipient of the crown of life given to those who are killed for the Lord's sake. I'm confident that Stephen wasn't looking to be martyred that day. He didn't wake up and say, how can I get killed for Jesus today? He didn't pursue martyrdom. But the Lord, in his perfect knowledge, determined that Stephen's race was going to be a sprint, not a marathon. I don't know why. Why Stephen had a 100-yard dash and Paul had a marathon, I don't know. Why Philip had a marathon, I don't know. At the end of both races, though, what happens? The winner of both races, whether it's the 100-yard dash or the 26.2 miles, they each receive the same crown in the Olympics, right? One gold medal is not better than the other. One Stephanos was not better than the other. No one turns to the sprinter and says, well, why don't you run long distances? What's up with this 100-meter stuff? Can't you run any farther than that? No one turns to the long-distance runner and says, why don't you sprint? What a waste. You ran for like three hours? Come on, man. This guy's race was over in 10 seconds. You could have saved yourself a lot of time. Of course not. That would be silly because the individuals have different giftings and different callings and different aptitudes. 
They have different lives that they're leading, each hoping to attain that crown, that Stephanos. That's the image that Paul gives us of the Christian life. He says, hey, listen, we're all running a race here. And I think I'm about to be poured out. I think my race is just about done. But we're all running a race. And we're all reaching forward to be that Stephanos winner, to, to, to receive that crown that the Lord wants to give us. There's lots of different crowns that the New Testament talks about, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, crown of glory. But this is the image that Paul gives us of the Christian life. And Stephen examples it for us. He lives it out for us. Stephen had a lot of potential from our way of thinking. Had we been the ones making the strategies and plans, we'd have given him a long career in the ministry. But God had a different race for him, one that was pivotal for all of human history, one that leaves a profound legacy. Stephen's life on the pages of Scripture embodies the pursuit of Jesus Christ and laying hold of the crown, the Stephanos, the heavenly reward for faithful service, not running aimlessly but toward a specific purpose, which is to honor God and be used by him in whatever ways he sees fit, becoming more and more like Jesus as we go, knowing that we will have to sacrifice along the way and we may encounter very real trouble, but being willing to run as hard as we can as long as the Lord's course is for us.